our reading from this morning comes from Acts chapter 14, verse 19 through 20. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they were won over, and they won over the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Will you pray with me? Father God, we ask that you anoint your church with the power to preach your gospel relentlessly. Yet as we worship publicly in freedom, we ask for respite for our brothers and sisters worldwide who cannot do this. But Father, if their persecution must remain, may their testimony plant seeds in the heart of their persecutors. You can do what man cannot, soften the heart in order for someone to receive salvation. So God, please save all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. How you doing, guys? Well, you look good. You look warm, but comfortable. We, are, we will be in Acts chapter 14. I hope you brought your Bible. If you have an electronic Bible, you can open there as well. And uh, we started with verses 19 and 20. I thought um, that what we should have at the end of worship are a bunch of fireworks going off. But I didn't want it to look like a skillet concert. So uh, we didn't do that today. But we are going to preach the word today. So if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 14. Now, as we just read, uh, Paul has been sovereignly spared. Paul has been sovereignly spared. He was left for dead. He was left for dead under a pile of stones. And they thought he was dead. That means that he must have been so out of it, so damaged that they thought that he was gone. But the disciples gather around him and God has decided sovereignly that Paul is going to live to preach another day. And so we're going to move now into a part of the story where we're going to look at how Paul actually made disciples, how he made disciples. And we catch a glimpse of that in this next section, this next final paragraph here before they return to Antioch, Syria. Over the years, I have read quite literally scores of books or listened to podcasts uh, or attended conferences on church growth. And uh, a lot of the advice, I would have to say, has been pretty good. In terms of the practical advice of those kinds of conferences, it's pretty good. But one of the things that I have find, found to be woefully inadequate at these conferences, these church growth conferences or a church growth book or something like this, is the focus and emphasis on the preaching of the word, the function and role of the preaching of the word in making disciples. And so we're going to actually look at that today. I found, I just Googled it last week and I thought, I wonder if I can just find something to quote in the sermon. And within five seconds, I, I had a pretty uh, uh, tra high traffic blog that I wrote by a supposed uh, self-described expert in church growth. And here was his advice on growing your church. He said in no uncertain terms, sermons do a lot of things, but they don't make disciples. Imagine that. What are we doing, right? What are we here for? He goes on in the article to enlighten us as to what preaching does. He says that preaching can inspire, inform, and motivate people, but again, he says, preaching can't make disciples. The key to making disciples, he wrote, is not proclamation. Okay, we get it. I could not find what he thought did make disciples in the article. And I want to say that is exactly the kind of wrong-headed thinking that has just permeated the, the uh, megachurch movement over the last 50 years. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we're a megachurch. At least in this town, we are. 
<laughs> okay? Uh, maybe not in some of the towns where I've served, but in this town, I think we are the second largest church in this, in this region. I think, I think that's true. And so we are a mega church. And listen, the mega church movement has done a lot of good, and there has been some bad. And this is one of the things that's been bad. It's just the devaluing of the proclaimed and preached word in a local Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday night gathering. So let me say plainly, preaching to the gathered assembly is the primary way that the disciples in the first century made disciples. It's the primary way. Now listen, preaching is not the only thing you need to grow. It for sure is not the only thing that we need to grow spiritually, but it is one of those that it is the primary thing when we gather together, what God does is set into motion. He catalyzes the curious heart. He sets into motion a heart that becomes hungry and thirsty for righteousness so that you can take it into your life and track it down, track it out. And so we gather to exalt Christ together. And as we do, we encourage each other for the difficulties of life. And, we, and our bonds of unity are strengthened. And we are moved to fulfill the Great Commission as we challenge one another to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples and to become disciple makers. So it is through the proclamation of God's word that we are converted from being unrighteous to righteous. And we are taught to obey all that Christ has commanded. So we want to talk a lot uh, this morning about how Paul and Barnabas made disciples. So they made disciples by preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. If you look at verse 21, Acts 14, 21, it says, after they had preached the gospel here in Derby, in that town, and made many disciples. So how did they make many disciples? They preached the gospel. They preached it unapologetically uh, in a very relational way, way, but they proclaimed it. And it says, when Jesus, uh, it says the, uh, <clears throat> so after they had done this, and then they went back through the towns in which they had planted churches. And that's Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So they were backtracking, going back to those disciples. We'll talk about that in a second. Now this word for preach is the same word that the Gospels use for Jesus, who taught and preached in the synagogues. And what did he do when he was teaching and preaching in the synagogues, or teaching and preaching on the hillsides? He was making disciples of the kingdom. That's what he was doing. So in Acts, we see Luke consistently uses this word. Uh, he uses this word repeatedly by, uh, uh, to describe the apostles, evangelists, preachers, prophets, and teachers making disciples through public proclamation. Colossians 1.28, Paul says this. He said, we preach. We preach Christ. Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present you mature in Christ at his return. So the way in which we present you mature in Christ at his return is we preach the word and we warn and instruct and we teach. Now, not every act of proclamation is a Sunday morning sermon. I have to tell you that. But the public proclamation can and should inspire ongoing conversation throughout the week. So preaching is biblical. It's a command and it's the primary way in which Paul and Barnabas made disciples. But what does it do? What does it do? Well, preaching is instrumental in our conversion. Preaching is instrumental in our conversion. God has ordained it so that faith is awakened in the heart by the public proclamation of the message. 
Paul said this in Romans 10, mark this verse down because this verse tells us what the good confession is. This verse tells us what our collective confession is as a body. He says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. That's what we confess publicly when we're here and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead after he was crucified, you will be saved. Verse 14, he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's Isaiah. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? That's Isaiah 53. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the message that is proclaimed in Christ. So how does faith come? Faith awakens in the heart at the proclamation of the message. And so preaching is very instrumental in our conversion. It's instrumental in our initial conversion, and it's also instrumental in our continual conversion. Do you think you still need conversion? Some of you are pretty ornery. I can tell you right now, <laughs> you do. Believers likewise experience an ongoing conversion or a reformation of our thoughts and our patterns and our actions through the word. This is what we do on a Sunday morning. Just because we're saved doesn't mean that we come into the faith now believing everything that is true, right? We come in, we actually are converted and come into the faith and we hold all kinds of false beliefs and it takes a lifetime for Christ to work them out of us, right? And so God's word, Paul tells us, is inspired. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16. You can write that verse down, look it up later. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16. He says, God's word is sacred. The sacred scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Then he says this, God's word, all scripture is inspired and it's useful. Scripture is not only inspired, scripture is useful. Scripture is profitable for what? For teaching and rebuking and correction and training in righteousness. Why would a believer need that? Why would a believer need rebuking, teaching, correction and training in righteousness? Because we hold all kinds of false beliefs and God needs to reform our beliefs. Because we come into the body of Christ converted by the Holy Spirit, but we still have all kinds of bad habits that don't look like Christ, that are ungodly and, not, and they're godless. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we're always wise. We all need the discipling conversion that the word of God brings. The continuous conversion and reformation of how we think and how we act. Just to give you an illustration of that, when I was a kid and I first got saved uh, around the age of 15, I started hanging out with these friends and uh, we used to be uh, breakdancing rivals. <laughs> In our previous life, I'm not going to show you my moves right now. At some point in the future, though, you keep hoping against all hope, is what I tell you. But uh, we both got saved. Both groups of guys got saved. And we came together. We saw each other in a Christian bookstore, and we were trying to find a Bible. We were trying to buy a Bible, and we decided to form a small group. 
And my two friends, they were going to uh, a very wild Pentecostal sort of charismatic church, and I was going to a very grounded, solid Pentecostal church on the other end of town. And we were, <laughs> and we were just going to two different kinds of churches. And I'll have to tell you, uh, when we got together during the week, we spent a lot more time together in Bible study than I did with my pastor or that I did in church on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a Sunday night. And I could tell you right now that when we were in our Bible studies together, we, we looked at the Bible very differently. We looked at the Bible very differently. They were always looking for the new revelation. Like the new revelation. What, what is God revealing to me right now? And I was lock, always looking for the authorial intent. Like what that means is I was looking for the intention of the author to his original audience. And we attended two very different churches. When I went to their church, you would hear this five times in a message. You got to get the revelation. Or you would hear the pastor say, the Lord revealed to me what this passage means for us right now. And I would think, huh, that's weird. I mean, it seems like there was an original audience here. And then when you would go to my church, this is what you would hear. This is what this passage meant to its original readers. And I'm telling you, my pastor's way was the right way. It just was. Because the Bible means what it meant. Its meaning to us comes through its meaning to them. And if it had no meaning to them, it has no meaning for us. With every line of scripture, you and I should ask what the Bible meant to say, not what it can be made to say. Because the moment you ask what it made to say, you are violating the conversation. If you were in conversation with me, and you were trying to tell me something about your day, and I just totally interpreted it to say, so you're saying that uh, the UFOs on TV, they're really extraterrestrial life, which is what I believe. No, just kidding. Uh. And you would respond to me, what, what are you talking about? I was trying to tell you about my day. And I was like, so what you're saying is extraterrestrial life is real. And you would say, are you crazy? Are we not in the same conversation? What am I doing? I'm violating the rules of normal conversation. Because I'm not listening to what you intend to say to me. I'm, I'm pouring meaning into what you're saying. And so let's give the biblical authors the same courtesy. They had a message for their original audience. They had a message for their original audience. And what I did not realize at the time, I did not realize this, that my pastors were training me. They were converting the way that I think about Scripture. In the way that they preached on Sunday morning, they were teaching me how to read this text. They were teaching me how to read what God had encoded in the text. And that had a converting effect on the way that I thought about the text. So preaching does this. Preaching converts us initially, but it also converts the believer, our thoughts and our habits and our actions. Number two, preaching is instrumental for our strength and encouragement. Listen, 2 Timothy 3.16 is a really important verse to know. God's word is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. Absolutely. But it's not the only thing you need. You know what else you need? Encouragement. You and I need encouragement. We need to come to church on a Sunday morning and hear the encouragement of the gospel. Now, this is exactly what Paul and Barnabas do. Verse 21, this is after they had preached the gospel. In that town, they had made many disciples through the preaching of the gospel. Number 22, this is strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. They were backtracking through all the towns where they had planted churches and they were strengthening those small churches, those house churches, and they were doing it 
by encouraging them. And what was the message of their encouragement? You're going to suffer greatly. Yay! You're going to suffer. And when you do suffer, have this perspective. You're going to the kingdom. You're on your way to the kingdom of heaven. And we must enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it is necessary. The Greek word for necessary is the word day. And that word means necessary. It means, it means absolutely critical, vital. And so you and I, it is necessary for the trials that we face in this life to deliver us to the kingdom of God. We are saved through hardship, not by it, through it. The gospel has a preserving effect on the believer. We are saved as we go through many trials and hardships in this world. These hardships are not the source of our salvation, and they are not our destination. Let me tell you a little secret. Here's a secret. Everybody in this world is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Everyone is. This is the journey. The journey is that we are all going through what Psalm 23 calls the valley of the shadow of death. But not everyone is walking through that valley with Jesus. Never, not everyone is walking with that valley expecting the Lord to prepare for us a table in the midst of it. Because that's what he does. His promise to us, his followers, is to prepare a table for those who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Those folks that are his. And we've said it before. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Anybody not want to go to heaven? Yeah, no hands are raised. How many of you do want to go to heaven? Yeah. Well, of course, you do. Right, everybody wants to go to heaven. But nobody wants to die to get there. Right, Steve Jobs, I stole that from Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was right. And everybody wants to go to the, be delivered to the kingdom of God, but who of us wants to walk through the valley of, shadow, of uh, death's shadow? None of us do. Well, why does Paul say it's necessary? The primary message here is that trials are inevitable and they're instrumental and that we ultimately enter God's kingdom where trials cannot touch us anymore. Trials cannot touch us anymore. So what do trials do? Well, trials are a means of our growth. They really are. I know, that's the worst thing to hear when you're in the midst of something. When you're in the midst of suffering, the worst thing for somebody to tell you is, hey, listen, God is growing you up through this. But it's true, folks. This is one of the ways in which God forges steel in us. This is one of the ways in which God forges us into the image and likeness of his one and only son. An unexercised muscle will atrophy. A blade that is not hammered and tempered will break. And trials are also vital in proving us. The scripture calls this the testing of the genuineness of our faith. And trials are indispensable to equip us to minister to others. This is what Paul tells the Corinthians. He says to the Corinthians, do you know why we can minister to you in your suffering? Because we suffered. And when we suffered, we received the comfort from God in our suffering that we are now passing on to you. And so when I look at the things that I have gone through in this life, it has equipped me to be a minister of God's comfort to others. And, and this is part of the project. This is part of God's plan. And trials are the means by which God preserves us. You ever hear of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? Yeah, well, it's true. It's biblical. But the way in which God perseveres us is through hardship. It's actually the instrument by which he causes us to persevere to the end. This is his instrument to do it. 
But in the midst of these tests and these trials on our faith, which are indispensable and they're inevitable, we need encouragement. We need the encouragement to know this is not the destination, that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is here. We're encouraged as we're reminded of our heavenly calling in Christ. The headline of this passage is not you will suffer. The headline of this passage is yes, you will suffer, but in the end, God is going to deliver you to his glorious kingdom. And this is an already but not yet kingdom. What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus taught the kingdom in Acts 1-3 for 40 days. Philip proclaimed the good news of the kingdom in Acts 8-12. Paul argued persuasively for the kingdom of God with the Ephesians in the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Acts 19-8. From morning till night, Paul never stopped proclaiming from the law and the prophets the kingdom of God. That's Acts 28, 23, and 31. So what do we mean when we say the kingdom. What do we mean? Well, number one, the kingdom of God is his reign over all power, authority, and dominion. The kingdom of God is his reign over all power, authority, and dominion. Remember Acts chapter one, when Jesus is standing there and he's talking to them, and then he just sort of lifts off, and he goes into a cloud, and he he is hidden by a cloud, and then an angel shows up and says, what are you guys standing here looking in the cloud for? Go get to work. Go do what he said right? And so that is not, we said, that is not the account of the first spaceman, right? The first human astronaut. That is not what Acts chapter 1 is about. Now, Jesus literally did lift off the earth, and he, earth, and he really did. Uh, he really was hidden by a cloud, but that is symbolic of Daniel chapter 7. The son of man who ascends through the cloud to the ancient of days to receive all dominion, all power, all authority, and all the worship of the nations. He is the son of man. He is God's son. And so that's what it's symbolic of. So he has been exalted high above all power, dominion, and authority. And the kingdom of God begins in the heart of every believer who is born anew into this realm. The reason why you can't defeat this kingdom, the reason why you can't stop it, is because it's everywhere, but it's nowhere. Right? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't say it wasn't for this world. He just said it's not of this world. And what he said was, there won't be like a place you could say, there it is. There's the kingdom. Now, now go uh, lay a siege against it. Nope. The kingdom is everywhere, but it's nowhere. Everywhere where there is a born-again heart, everywhere where there is a Christian, be it in China or South Korea or North Korea or Russia or Africa or America, wherever a Christian is, the kingdom of God is present because this is literally a kingdom of hearts, a kingdom of transformed lives. And the kingdom of God is visible in and through the church. You want to know what the kingdom is supposed to look like? Well, just come to church. This is what the kingdom is supposed to look like. Romans chapter 10, our collective confession is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and exalted above all rule, all authority, and all power. That's our collective confession. And this is what it looks like when God reigns in a people. And that happens in the local and universal church. And the kingdom of God is escalating. The kingdom of God is escalating. Tension between this kingdom and the kingdoms of this world who oppose that kingdom is escalating. It's getting worse. And it's going to get worse and worse until the end. The kingdom of God results in a new heavens and a new earth. When God returns, when Jesus Christ comes back, when he returns, which is our, this is our hope. What's your hope today? 
What are you hoping in? Titus 2.13 says this, while we wait for the blessed hope, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your hope today? Is it, the, is it the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? I hope it is, because at that time, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. You and I are going to be resurrected from the dead. Right now, it's proclaimed over all. Right now, it's present in our hearts. Right now, it's portrayed in Christian community, but it's also not yet. It's not here yet. We haven't yet seen Christ come and cons consummate and fulfill his kingdom. So this is the kingdom of God. It brings us consolation in the midst of our present struggles. And preaching reminds us that the cares of this life, all the stuff we wade through and walk through, the testing and trying circumstances of our faith, it is the means by which we are formed, forged into Christ's likeness, but it's temporary. It's temporary. All of it will be swallowed up in victory. It'll be swallowed up in the victory of heaven and the victory of new creation and resurrection. So as we pass through many hardships, we are ultimately coming into God's kingdom, the heavenly realm. And this is what Paul is trying to encourage these early churches with. He's trying to say, listen, you're going to go through some difficult times, but understand at the end of it, God is going to, all of this is going to be swallowed up in the victory of the cross, the victory of resurrection. And that's how disciples are made. We are made by the proclaimed word of God that teaches us and converts us and constantly reforms our thinkings and our life and our pattern. And we're encouraged in the word. So I want to leave you with an encouraging word this morning. It's Romans 16, 25. It's a beautiful benediction that Paul gave to the Romans. He said, now to him, God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever, amen. Will you pray with me? I invite the worship team to come back up. If you will bow your head and close your eyes, we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for leaving us a sure word in this book. We thank you for its transforming power in our minds. We thank you for its converting effect on how we think as kingdom ambassadors in this world. And we know that our trials are inevitable. And we also know that they're instrumental. We know that that's the very way in which you forge your character in us. And we take comfort and solace in the fact that we have received an eternal kingdom that can never fade and will never pass away. And that's our destination. And right now that kingdom is proclaimed over all. And Father, may we be encouraged. May you instill courage in us to fearlessly proclaim it, though you reign over all. And right now it's present in our hearts. Father, may the peace of Christ reign in our hearts. And right now it's observed in the church, the holy community, your holy saints, where your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, we look forward to a day when you will return in glory, when you will set all things right and bring your world writing, salvation and justification. God, we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us? We are gonna close our time with some music here and we're going to seal this message in our hearts with a song.